0: Here's the thing. like I think if only a few years ago, um, the hard fight was in going out solo, being a freelancer. I don't think that's the hard fight anymore. I don't think there's any I don't think there's anything to be celebrated in this whole like culture of leaving the nine to five as if that's even a bad thing. I think the harder thing now is to be in a nine five and to chase a a bigger vision with a company and a group of people. That's the harder thing now. There's nothing to celebrate anymore in going, I'm gonna fuck the system, go out and be a sole trader. Like that's that's now the norm, right? We're we're there. That's that's happened. Um so the hard battle now is going, well, well, what's the bigger thing? And the tough ingredient I think in that is that all of these platforms, Instagram, etc., they're run by psychopaths. <laughs> <laughs> like Ali is an
1: artist in the fall. It's easy to get wrapped up in the day-to-day busy work, putting too much focus on the insignificance. This conversation with Ollie is an exploration on how we can avoid all those trappings and get back to doing the work that matters. Yeah, that's like kind of another thing before we like start this interview officially. It's like, I feel like the the barrier of entry to photography is so low now, which is like on one hand I think is really cool. Like I think like art being accessible and people like having the tools to create is like, it's really cool to be like living in a time like that. But then it's like, it, it, it almost becomes too easy and nobody's like necessarily doing anything meaningful with the tools they have, you know? And it's like, and I, and I think that it kind of becomes like so much of our work that we're we're publishing is going out on like social media, which is like incentivizing like certain types of behavior, which then seems to be like skewing artwork into like a very specific type of look, like that look that's like guaranteed to get those like engagement. Um, mm-hmm. man, yeah,
0: that's that's such a good segue for the the whole the whole thing. Like, ah, oh, man, and like what what you're saying there. It, it even applies to um, things that start out being niche, for example, such as, you know, shooting gas stations on cine, still film. Yeah. Uh, but then what I always try to be conscious of is being in a few little groups where you've got like fucking asshole photographers who are really <laughs> critical and seeing what they have to say about it because they, you, you will, I don't know, I'll normalize or I'll fetishize something like that, which is actually hitting peak pop culture and then there's these guys talking about it and these groups going um oh, fucking gas stations like they they're kind of on the pulse with what's hitting hitting trend mm-hmm. and it kind of grounds you when you read it to go okay shit like these old codgers that so much of the young generation have written off are actually looking and have a, such a broad knowledge of what's happening in that art space and i don't know it kind of it kind of draws it home in like at home is the wrong word. It kind of grounds you, going, okay, all the stuff that's that we think is like, is niche, really quickly becomes non-niche when it's accessible and democratized, and the formula gets cracked by every Instagrammer with 50,000 followers, and it becomes old really quickly. And it kind of makes me go, well, I've got to chase that slow work, the soft work, the hidden work. Mm. Who are the creators that have not much following but are, are um chipping away at something unique in the shadows. I don't know if that made any sense, but...
1: No, it does make sense, and it's, like, not something that I've thought about, like, in a while, because it's, like... I don't know, for me, like, when I was younger, I was, like, really into, like, early, like, punk music and early, like, hip-hop, and it seems like you would have these sub-genres, and it's, like, really, like, interesting, and there's so much excitement, and, like, things are being pushed, but then it starts to pop off and get attention and then it gets like packaged into like what like punk is or like what Mm. does it mean to be that and then that exploration of creativity seems to stop and then i think what's happening with the internet is like everything's so fast so like when you're jamming in a, a niche and i think like even like some of your work like jamming around with like uh expired film and like pushing that like now it now that has kind of tipped over and is like a thing and then it's mm-hmm. like niches become like mainstream really fast and it's i don't know oh, like yeah. what do you what do you what do you do with
0: that and do you get like frustrated by that it's it's funny what you've been a bit said about the talks before i mean like I, i've i think a big reason why i stopped producing in the last five years nearly anything is because of exactly that like you, i feel like I found it hard to justify anything I was doing as being interesting, and I and I still do. So I'm still trying to find find that edge mm. because when I when I look at things now, everything seems so accessible, right? And you can you can kind of crack the code on creating something, and the things that I'm interested in making are, are things that are a little bit harder or, or inaccessible. So I'm trying to answer that question now, and I really think it lies in, you know, if we look at Magnum photographers, they're, mm-hmm. the, they're the easy one for us to understand. You know, they work on these bodies of work over one or two decades, and that's something you can't just chip out and replicate. You know, Bieki Deporter um, follows around this muse and creates this body of work with her over a five year period. That requires investment. That's hard. And that requires you to lean into something that's not gratifying for a period of years, <laughs> you know, and that people won't understand. And I think that's kind of the fight that I'm interested in. So mm-hmm. finding, finding what that is, because I think, you know, flashy work, flashy work's easy to make. You know, I kind of got really pulled into the chiaroscuro thing a, a bunch of years ago and I love that look, but I've even lost interest in that now because I'm like, well, I don't want to just lean on a technique mm. that, that's you know even if it results in you know getting a bunch of likes easily if it's an easy go to um i want to be conscious of not tapping into that gratification yeah so that's my that's my inner tor- inner torment
1: <laughs> no the struggle the I struggle yeah the struggle there is like real and i think even to like a lesser degree, like I'm kind of experiencing something similar right now because like I'm trying to find, again, like a, like an outlet for my creativity, like outside of what I'm doing for Image and like not wanting to rely on s- social media or, you know, and like trying to find a way to put out the work in a l- little more like honest way that's like not getting like wrapped up in like the slot machine of like that gratification and but yeah like I, what you're saying about these like with the magnum photographers like being able to like hold off with like the with the idea of like a long-term goal in mind like that mm. does that just seems so not with the modern times it's like I'm, I'm talking to these like up-and-coming creatives and they're been doing it for like three months and they're freaking out that they're not Cracking through yet?
0: Oh yeah, man. We've got to we got to change our <laughs> idea of cracking through. <laughs> like, <laughs> here's the thing. Like, I think if only a few years ago, um, the hard fight was in going out solo, being a freelancer. I don't think that's the hard fight anymore. I don't think mm. there's any. I don't think there's anything to be celebrated in this whole like culture of leaving the nine to five as if that's even a bad thing. I think the harder thing now is to be in a nine five. And to chase a a bigger vision with a company and a group of people. That's the harder thing now. There's nothing to celebrate anymore and going, I'm gonna fuck the system, go out and be a sole trader. Like that's that's now the norm, right? We're we're there. That's that's happened. Um so the hard battle now is going, well, well, what's the bigger thing? And the tough Ingredient, I think in that is that all of these platforms, Instagram, etc., they're run by psychopaths. <laughs> like, they're run by people that hire psychologists to kind of, to monetize and monopolize our attention. And, and, you know, there's a great uh, little text that I, that I, you know, came across on exactly oh, cool. that called ruined by design by a guy called Mike Montero. Everyone needs to read that because it's such a brilliant, candid look at how these platforms came about and how they've created this culture internally of, of just saying yes, yes, yes. So it's no longer, I don't think, a tough battle to scale, 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 and, and get big and get in front of eyeballs. Uh, the big challenge now is saying no to that and going, what's the smaller, more localized option? What is the, what is the long game in creating something valuable and worthwhile? Hmm. And saying no to numbers, and scale, and eyeballs—you know—that's. I think we're there. I think that's the easy thing now.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't disagree with that, but like, what's like, what's the alternative to that? Because there's, like, the definition of what it is to be like a successful creative has been like so warped by, you know, these figures like mark zuckerberg where it's like you're 25 and you're a billionaire or you know you've popped off at 14 and you're like a household name and it seems like that's the goal and anything like less than that is is not good enough right like it doesn't like it's interesting that i don't know like being able to create meaningful art that resonates with us like a small audience like isn't like isn't enough for most Mm. creatives like they want it to
0: be more than that and yeah I feel like that yeah that maybe that comes to just identifying where those dopamine hits are coming from and
1: Mm.
0: how fulfilling they actually are in the moment and you know the thing we find time and time again is if for example we go out with a small crew of creatives and have some great meaningful conversations the level of happiness we get out of that is exponentially greater than putting out work that plays to the the easy wins and what's in at the time you know Yeah, it's, it's almost like a you know and the other thing wrapped up in that is the whole idea of monetizing it but I think there's so many examples out there of successful businesses that haven't just monetized themselves or made themselves sustainable by seeking just scale. There's plenty of sole traders out there with, you know, a, a following, a, a fraction of what would be considered large that still have a successful business. Yeah. I look at my, you know, the thing that's drilled at home with me is I, I track all my inquiries in a spreadsheet where they came from, the, the frequency. Uh, who they came from so that I can then serve those avenues and double down on them later. And I think the thing we've got to realize if we're in a service-based area like this is that we get to choose that avenue. We've got a lot of agency over that. And when I tracked all of my inquiries, I realized that over 70 or 80% of them were actually coming from a really narrow group of local vendors. Oh, And when I put that out and mapped that out on paper, I'm like holy crap, this tiny, tiny pool of relationships is resulting in exponentially more work than scheduling three or four posts a day, bombing the system with hashtags and just annihilating myself for hours on social media. So it's like, okay, that's pretty revealing. And it's actually always been that way. Yeah. Personal relationships have always been what's, what's made what's kept things going
1: so like why do you why do you think we got so wrapped up in the other way because like i've been finding that too like i'm really like interested in the photographers that i meet who i don't know they're from like a smaller community and maybe they're like instagram followings like 500 to a thousand people but they're running a successful like business and and i think what you're touching on there is like do we need to be stepping away from that social media game and like the seo game and all this like i don't know like bullshit that we get fed around it and really just focusing in on producing good work and like actually establishing meaningful connections
0: yeah and then maybe finding out a way to you know it sounds awful but a way to strategize that like if you think about all the things in your day-to-day the businesses that you're really connected to um whether it's your barista where you buy your clothes we can often kind of put a name on that and it's often a really really small uh a, a narrow number within each of those areas you know coffee clothing so what is it that made you connect with those and you know i can quantify that for myself I only go to my one wrist, I buy all my stuff off her. I pay for. I pay more for the, um, th- for the physical materials from her, probably with a fifty percent markup because I don't want to put money in Jeff Bezos' pocket because that's a terrible thing. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, I get to chat with her. I get to meet with her. All of the stuff that's in local. So, yeah, it's a toughie. No, and it's and it's that like and it's-, it's not a really sellable. <laughs> it's. it's it's not a really uh, sorry. It's no, not really go. a sellable podcast conversation either. It's um, it's, <laughs> you know, it can be. It can sound like it's got this cloud of negativity to it, but I really think it's a worthwhile thing to to sit on.
1: No, I think so too. And I, like whatever, I guess our podcast isn't getting any of like the me undie sponsorship money, but but it, I don't know. Like, it's also. Like it's, it's interesting.
0: I'll give you my Amazon refer- referral code if you, if you want. Yeah. So uh, can yeah. Can yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay, good. I need, I need to get myself one of those side hustles. Um, But it's like interesting. Cause it really does seem like we're at this crossroad. And I think with like the pandemic has probably like sped that up and like starting to see how like the negative side of social media and that it's not necessarily living up to the promise that, you know if you played this game you would be able to create an audience and then you would you know get the fame and then the money and Mm. all the power and it and it and the opposite seems to be true where it's like actually eroding like our communities and our ability to create
0: progressive work Mm. exactly that and what you kind of i feel like what you're talking about there is is the value of stuff when scale's involved. And I read a really great piece the other day, and it kind of speaks to what you mentioned about punk earlier, that really interesting, innovative stuff is almost always created from minorities, whether that's a, um, a particular cluster of people via, like, an economic thing, like class or, you know, any other geographical group of people. It's it's minorities because there's, there's a... Um, I feel like there's an element of struggle in there um, and need to find a different way to be heard in a system that won't let them be heard. But punk's a really great example of that as well. You know, the way that genre started through trying to put this message forward against government and all of these other things. And where it's ended up at, being sold on T-shirts at Kmart is like completely at odds with each other. Yeah. But we get to pick what we're going to be out of those. We get to immerse in in this kind of pool of counterculture of trying to find stuff new or we get to immerse ourselves in the in the bigger pool of scale. Mm. Yeah, and I guess it's like deciding
1: like who you want to like be on that because it's like at the same time it's a little bit like of like of the cycle of gentrification. Jennifer- vacation you know like it it yeah like it it's just like a part of it so like do you want to be the person who's like having an impact and like uh bringing community together and like creating things that are exciting or stealing that and like capitalizing on it and Mm. and maybe that's not exclusive but like i but i do want to go back to this like idea of struggle that you're touching on, because I think that's so true. And I think if you look at like art history, the there always seems to be like a period of like very interesting art coming out of like very troubling times. Um, yeah, and I think mm. so. I'm partly excited because, like, I think with like the pandemic. Like we'll start to see some of that, but like, like, what do you think it is about struggle? Struggle that leads to interesting art, and like, why? Why as an artist do we need to have some type of struggle to push against?
0: I feel like there's a lot of smarter people than I that have that have, that have got a that have written a lot about that, mm-hmm. but I I think. If I was to like distill that down into one thing, it's it's constraints. So if you've got economic struggle, you have a whole lot of constraints around how you can create and what you can create. If you've got religious constraints, you know, all of the artwork created hundreds and hundreds of years ago, you have to work within this box and you push that box and eventually maybe you bust through a little bit. And there's a brilliant book, ah, oh, that's almost exactly on this topic. And I, I feel like everyone who's not, who would class themselves is not musical needs to read this yeah. because everyone is musical. If you connect with a song, then you have had someone who's written a melody almost manipulate your feelings. And that's the most incredible thing because we know... Sorry, I'm totally drifting off No, go <laughs> off with it. here. But there, there are formulas of, of melody that we know will hit our emotions in a certain way. And that musical code was cracked open over the last only a th- really one and a half thousand years. Mm-hmm. And there's a book called The Story of Music and it piece by piece unravels how we cracked music through blowing, blowing air through a bone with a hole in it, mm-hmm. literally, over to layering harmonies and notes on top of each other, having one person singing and then going, oh, if we add this other person singing and they sing a little bit higher or a little bit lower, it creates this change in waveform entering our ears. Okay, what if we had a third? What if we had a fourth? And it just goes through the story of building up choirs and layering instruments and to cracking, cracking the musical code. So where was that with that? Ah, oh, but the, you know, the constraints around, around music, you know, there was literally a period in time where in some parts of the world, you had an instrument that might've only had one or two strings, right? And the idea of chords wasn't even invented. So a musician had to operate within those constraints and tell the story that was at the edge of what they could do with that tool. And a really great modern example of that is a friend who was a guitar teacher mm-hmm. and he'd have kids in for guitar lessons and he'd ask them to play a solo, but they could only use two notes, just two notes. So you're asking someone to communicate a song with, just two notes on an instrument and what he found was you start using different devices within that craft to tell a story so you might play you might have these two notes but then you might increase the gap between them and you might bend one note and then you might do a trill so and you start cracking open all of these other tools that exist around those around what you thought were just two notes, and that's where struggle and constraints, I think, comes into into that. And you know, and linking that into Instagram, when we're being bombarded by every style under the sun, it kind of. I think it changes our brain a bit because it takes away any idea of constraints, and I feel like that's kind of harmful to creating.
1: Yeah. No, because I
0: don't know if that even answered uh, the th- the thread you were on.
1: No, but it it well no, I think it does, and it also brought something to mind. But it's like the thing that really st- stands out to me about your work is like the fact that you're self imposing constraints, like you're going out of your way to make taking a picture difficult, if not nearly like impossible, with like some of the stuff you're doing but then what becomes like interesting i think like that the example of the guitar teacher being like you can only play these two notes is that it forces you to go deeper deeper with that and to like see what's possible and i think it's like when you have like a an unlimited tool box then it's like Instead of going deep with something and like really pushing it creatively or like what's the meaning behind this, it just starts to be like, you know, you're you're piling on different flair and flavors and filters and like more mm. sizzle, and it's not having any of that. Like <laughs> nobody can see my fist because it's a podcast, but like <laughs> <laughs> like the the meat like the meat of it, or are... yeah, like the meaning
0: and you don't you don't then get to double down on one thing and see how far that goes you don't get to go well how far do these two notes go are they just two notes or can they become a whole lot of other things if i discover other techniques wrapped around them and you know we see that done in painting there's a painter called Benjamin Ewing and he has he's a great example to me of someone doing something so non bombastic but yet his work is ending up on the walls of really discerning places all around the world. And he just does these unique line forms using negative space in a really kind of artful way. And, you know, it's the kind of thing you would see in an interior design magazine, I guess, but he doubles down on that one thing. And I think that takes more bravery than chasing numbers and scale and all that sort of stuff.
1: Yeah. So then... For you, was there, like, was there a moment that forced you to apply the brakes and be like, what do I want to be doing here? Or like, what, what caused you to step away and be like, I need to do a little bit of soul searching?
0: I think seeing, seeing friends around me produce stuff that I, I really respect and really hit home was I think the thing that made me step back and go. Oh my God what am I, what am I, what am I putting shit on <laughs> What am I putting shit on Instagram for? But here's the thing though. like you we don't we don't have to treat this as an art form. Like mm, much of what I do is is more in the service business. yeah, it's yeah. it's serving people through photojournalism. That's a really different thing to scratching your inner art ego itch. But I, I kind of do want to want to scratch that. And I think of a friend uh, Kate Dishaquil, She produced a book called Earshot where she, so she experiences deafness and over a period of a few years, she documented the deaf community and took a really, really artistic spin on an area that's completely often ignored by the arts or certainly through having a lens like hers over it. But it wasn't just a a great piece on that community, it was a piece that served them through the incredible use of design and photography and it's such a a fascinating book for anyone that I think that loves art or photojournalism or has magnum leanings and to see that bit of work and go okay so this is something she worked out quietly without chasing that gratification thing you know it's not going to get shared or retweeted by much of the photography community fixated on numbers because it's not interesting to them but I think it's profoundly more interesting than um, a lot of the other stuff I've seen. And that's the kind of work that, that I'm drawn to. So I guess I'm trying to find that thing. And I've got a couple of threads, but it's funny if you sit back and ask that question of, of what you're drawn to, you, you actually find it pretty quickly, if, if, you, if you ask it properly. Yeah. You know, um, I think I, I found a little piece on an actor a few years ago, Tammy Stronach. She was in a movie called The Neverending Story in the '80s, and okay. she played uh, she played the childlike Empress. And she had a, a short amount of screen time in that film, but it was a really hard, an impactful role. Like it was enough for her to make the movie poster, and which I think is really unique if you're only on screen for about ten minutes in a in a two-hour film. But I found a little piece on her involvement teaching dance and I found that really interesting because I'm like what does it take for someone to say no to all of the trappings that come with being in a massive massive pop culture film what does it take for someone Mm -hmm. to say no to following that and that it got me so intrigued I actually reached out to her and then ended up collaborating with her and effectively starting a project with her talking about exactly that what does it take to say no to the big thing and pursue those other little pieces of creativity that we have inside us and yeah we had some fantastic chats on on exactly that what led her into dance um why that thread wasn't followed when it could have been exploited and then you know led to some massive lengthy hollywood career and that was really really interesting to me
1: yeah well oh yeah uh so like how important is it to be able to say no because I think for a lot of this conversation we're like jamming on like art and like that kind of like (laughs) highbrow level stuff but I think as it like relates to like wedding photography and the fact that you're in a service business or even that like I like I've always been like fascinated by this idea of like saying yes to like opportunities and then getting into a direction that like maybe you didn't want to go Mm. you know. Um, And also I think with like photographers who really, like wedding photographers who like really stand out, it's like their work is very much their work and it's like unique. And I imagine for you to be able to produce stuff like that, like you have to say no to a lot of clients and only yes to the type of clients that are going to allow you to produce the work that you want to be producing or like the work that's mm. in line with your voice so yeah like how, how important that's, saying no
0: I feel like everyone, everyone's experience with that question is really really different I say yes to everybody okay <laughs> because I'm like because I don't get tons of inquiries because my I say no through my marketing I mm. say no through the, the work that I put out there that's almost my filter by the time someone inquires you know I'm usually getting some wacky Rad conversation in my inbox, anyway, and they're my type of person. So, I, yeah, it's that, a funny one. If you're, if you're in a different market, you know, in in the, in the states, the market's a lot bigger. There's a lot more photographers, a lot more competition, a lot more jobs in yeah. some cities. So, you know, you hear people maybe justifiably saying no and, and pushing things away. But you know, the reality is out here. I I get enough inquiries to get enough of, of the type of work with the, the type of people that I want to work with and I don't care what venue I'm at, I don't care what the styling is, I don't give a shit about any of that stuff. I just care about whether we're gonna get on great because that's what's underlined everything great about this job. Yeah. Working with a community that, you know, loves each other, cares, wants me to make images that they care about. Yeah. So I don't say no. Um, but there's a case to be said for doing that filtering through your marketing and you know the other thing too is I do some wacky stuff here and there at those jobs but it's so not about that you know I, I always make sure to send full galleries to couples and 80 or 90% of the coverage is just really standard photojournalism you know that I've cared about and processed properly and spent a lot of time on but there's only a few wacky shots here and there you know they they're not the things they're going to be printing or putting up on the wall the stuff they're going to be putting up we already know is images they with people they care about yeah it's pretty standard stuff
1: so like what's I don't
0: want an art piece on my wall (laughs) you know I wouldn't want that I would want I would want the candid shoot through of I don't know someone pouring a drink over my head you know I don't I wouldn't be printing some giant negative space arty thing and putting it up I I just don't care about that stuff you know I care about pure photojournalism I care about really really normal images in that context so that's the bulk of what I make
1: huh but so when you're on like when you're on like a paid shoot like that and you're like at service to your client like are you finding a balance between like the photos that you need to deliver and then like also taking some time to do like the stuff that's a little bit more explorative and creative that might be like more like a p- portfolio
0: piece or? Yeah, when I'm when I'm shooting a wedding, I'm conscious of, of the fact that, you know, stuff, you have to play the machine a little bit, of course. So I have to be putting stuff on my feed that's curated and, you know, gonna get people connecting with it because the stuff, you know, the thing about weddings is the images that they'll connect with online are often, you know, the grand stuff or the stuff that I've written and attached a long story to. Mm -hmm. But the images, that's very different to what they'll connect with in the work that they are delivered. They're they're always two completely different things. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm never shooting for marketing when I'm at a wedding, ever, period. But I do break up my shoots into into laps. For example, if I have 30 or 40 minutes of, of one thing happening whether that's canapes or a downtime to reception, I'll break that up into into laps. So, I'll I'll tell myself, okay, I'm going to do one lap, uh, chuck my camera on f16, full flash, and just go for this hard-hitting, you know, 80s photojournalism type thing. Okay. And then I'll do that lap and then I'll go back to more volume-based approach. So, the other lap I do is, I call it a volume lap, where I'm just trying to get happy faces enjoying things you know no art just really great stock standard stuff um, because that's what they're going to share with their community and and actually enjoy put as their profile pics whatever Yeah, um, that's the important work um, so obviously if I've got an hour or two hours and that ratio will change but I'll make sure I do I break up what those laps are a wedding I did in Canada a couple of years ago I had like a 1960s twin lens reflex so I did my volume lap so that I I knew I had good coverage of who was there. And then I put the digital cameras away and I gave myself 15, 20 minutes to just fire away on this old film camera. And with that, also comes the knowledge that you're going to miss some stuff, which is really healthy, I think, you know, because if we're shooting digital and firing stuff off at scale, then we're leaving out the goodness that film can give us if we have one of those old cameras and how that changes how we shoot so i kind of try and flip that on its head and mm. then throw the digital cameras away and then do a lap on this old old 70s film banger
1: yeah and like what what is the goodness of like that a film camera can bring
0: it's hard to quantify but a, a camera like that changes how you shoot a scene and you you literally will breathe like a sniper and then <laughs> try and capture that decisive moment but it also changes the qualities of the film afterwards and in that lap I got probably what's in my top two or three wedding photos I've ever taken through doing that lap and and you know that kind of drilled home to me the importance of just breaking stuff up into those laps and also giving your brain some breathing space in how it's capturing things like just breaking out of that maniacal <laughs> You know, like a squirrel that's just done a line of coke or something, and going, "I've got to get everything right now, fifty frames a second. and just giving it a bit of breathing room.
1: Yeah. No, yeah, like that. That the, <laughs> the image of a squirrel doing cocaine reminds me, um, <laughs> like back in the day, I have this, I have this good buddy Ryan, and we used to, we used to just lie about working for uh, different magazines to get media passes for music festivals and stuff and we ended up in like iceland and we were in the scrum and he has this like nikon f100 and like takes like two pictures of the band while like all these like other people working for like re- like actual music mags are just like and it's like you're not like in the moment um anyways that's an aside i do have a question for you so you you mentioned that, like the the important work is like getting the work that's like, yeah like this the smiling faces the the, I guess bland work that's going to be used on social media or is going to be important for the couple. But before the pandemic, I was on the road and going to a lot of these uh, photography conferences and like interacting with like different photographers and it and it almost seems f- for for most photographers that that type of work is like baggage that's preventing them from doing their important work, which seems like it's work catered to awards or like work that's celebrating photography or is like, you know, like, like Mm. photography, like photography, that's like celebrating photography and not necessarily a moment, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, and I feel like that's kind of like a... It's sort of like a race to the bottom. You know, when I hear that, I'm like, oh, that sounds like, you know, Dream Theater wanking over a guitar solo for 10 minutes straight. It's like, okay, cool. There was a lot of training that led to this moment and that, but it just sounds like Super Mario music sped up times 20. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: you
0: know? And I grew up on Dream, dream Theater. I love it, but... Um, I... Yeah... Uh, I'm kind of a little bit at odds with that. Like, I think it should be the other way around where you get to the end of a year where you've cared about the people you're shooting for and then go, oh, I'll look through all the work I made and I'll see if anything is there that kind of fits the parameters of this awards thing. And then great, then celebrate that stuff. Um, You know, but everyone's model is different too. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, the counter to that, everything has a devil's advocate. The counter to that is, um, I can't remember his name, but... He did a this is about 10 years ago now he did he did a wedding and he called it anti documentary and he shot the entire thing on 8x10 with the idea that candids in that moment didn't really matter and and it was true you know you have he created a record of a wedding where everything was staged instead of nothing staged and it was fantastic i think maybe he made 30 or 40 frames maybe on yeah. that 8x10 film camera, which for folks that don't know that is an enormous camera that you have to lug around. And everyone has to be more or less dead still. And I thought that was brilliant. And, you know, if I think honestly, I'm like, well, there's a lot to be said for letting our imagination fill in the gaps. And that's why I'm offering this, this analog package with, with my rebrand coming up because so much of the culture of weddings now is this get everything thing as if everything is important and it Mm -hmm. kind of is if you've got it but the opposite to that is if you didn't get it then it doesn't exist and you know my parents wedding there's maybe two photographs of that floating around and I think that's fantastic because I don't know that anything else existed and your imagination fills in the gaps and maybe it does for them too or maybe they would have wanted 900 JPEG files to piss fart around with on a USB I don't know
1: no and that's uh, yeah like that's so true because there's this there's this picture in my mom's house of her parents getting married and it's like the only picture of that wedding that i've seen and it's like they're walking down and there's this you know my uh grandma's like looking at my grandfather and it's just like so much love and it's just like this really sacred moment but then like my brother's wedding where it was like i don't know like, it was handed off on, like, four CDs and stuff, and it's, like, not not once have we cracked in and dug through those photos, you know? No. And, it, and yeah, like, it's... I, I think, like, that's kind of where I get frustrated with photography is that the ability to take an image used to be really hard to do, which I think made like why an image was worth a thousand words when, when you're like, yeah, like when you're capturing everything, like none, none of it's important.
0: Mm. It's a real, <laughs> it's a real tough one because my, my business model is built on that. It's, it's on me turning up and absolutely working my butt off to cover it comprehensively. Yeah. And I, never get bad feedback saying gee i wish we only had 20 instead of 800 you know and i've I've done polls and asked for that and and then you find out afterwards you know if people that you served on the day have passed away Mm. and these couples reach out to you and go holy shit i'm so glad i'm so glad you took so many photos of our of, of that uncle and you realize okay it's it really drills home how important it is that if you are there as a service provider, as a photojournalist, to do that job, if that's what you've sold. And if you want to turn up with an 8x10 and just take 20 stage frames, that's awesome too, if that's what you're selling them on the front end, and they know that. Yeah. But it also drilled home how, how many varied ways there are to do this job and how many of them are are untapped completely completely untapped from a both a branding point of view and a and a approach point of view
1: yeah well and i think that goes back to kind of how you approach things like it, it almost seems that like it almost seems like you're asking yourself like what what is the opposite like what Yeah. Like what is the opposite of like being a wedding photographer? Like what's the opposite of like what a wedding photographer website should do and like really kind of heading in that direction, like away from the crowd, I guess.
0: And it's tough to go, well, where does that, how does that marry with actually keeping inquiries coming in? Um, But pretty soon you find out couples are never looking at the same things that, that we are, you know, we, when I say we, I too fetishize, you know, all the megapixels and sharpness of the new Mark IV that I'm using. Yeah, Couples just aren't really looking at that stuff. They're not scrutinizing it. I don't scrutinize it when I've, I've been presented photos of myself. Quite the opposite, actually. You, you don't even think about it. And the more I get into this, the more I want less sharp and, and all of that jazz. So I think... I think there's a lot of avenues to to meet people and and hit them where they aren't expecting to be hit and that comes from asking well what are our are architects branding how are food companies branding how are how are punk bands branding themselves there's mm. so many different ways of presenting content to people and a question that i asked that i found really useful a couple of years ago when you know, my business started going south dramatically i completely took the foot off the gas i maybe went too polarizing and one one thing I realised out of that was, I you know there's a there's a kind of masculine feminine angle to to everything that we put out there, mm-hmm. and it's not gender related. It's just down to the qualities of those those two things. And so much of my feed and, and work that I was putting out was was masculine. It was it was uh, punchy, high, uh, hard contrast. Moody, it was all of these qualities that were, would have broadly fit into that. And then I had to go, well, a lot of people reaching out are kind of going to be connecting more with things with feminine qualities. So how do I find those elements in the work that I'm making, which is abundant because yeah. the, work, the work that I create is, like I said, 80 or 90% standard bright photojournalism. And how do I present that more so that people feel safe to reach out and feel seen? in the the work that I'm making. So, I found that a really useful question to ask and then change how I brand, change how I curate a feed and then change in turn the vendors that I celebrate.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think it kind of goes back to what you've been touching on around like being at, like as a wedding photographer, like being at service and... Yeah, like how how are you putting out your marketing to serve the people that you're seeking to serve and like mm. s- seeing them instead of yeah, instead of getting too wrapped up in like the artsy fartsy like creative yeah. aspect huh. of it. But then like do you think the fact that you do have Creative projects like outside of your job as a wedding photographer like allows you to like have an outlet for that so that you're able to be more like I'm at service when it comes to my business.
0: Yeah, I I think so. I I mean, I feel I feel better for scratching that itch in a little way, but also being at service in that situation's pretty freaking fun. You know, I've I've been in jobs where I didn't really like the mission of what was going on and you know the environment was quite different turning up and having fun with a bunch of people for 10 hours while making work that I believe in is pretty great so I also feel if I didn't have that outlet it would still be totally fine but I also think they they do feed each other you know there's you can experiment tons within one genre but for me you know starting that project mannequin was invaluable in tapping into smaller stories and um less obvious small things and that's something i carry into weddings all the time now trying to find those smaller things and Mm. you know it it informs like i was talking about the laps before i will do an art lap i'll do a photojournalism lap and i can't remember what i call my third one but you know it changes how i do that art lap in in finding looking at different things like layering and light rather than content huh so yeah there is a bit of a cyclical loop i think yeah they all kind of feed each other
1: okay i got a couple more things before i let you go if you're okay for time
0: dude yeah grass i'm worried about you it looks like like what time is it there (laughs) looks like all the there's no natural light i I love it that's a problem you (laughs) potentially have out there
1: well no it's not quite but like i'm originally from edmonton alberta which is like a very working class like rough town and they have an attitude towards quebec and montreal as quebec and montreal has an attitude towards them but it's a little bit like yeah those people in the east they're so soft like our our winters here are brutal and it's they're like the winters in edmonton it just hits like minus 40 for like three months and you just bundle up and it's fine but the winter in montreal it's like everything turns to ice and there's like snow and cars disappear and it's like it's it's fucking anarchy like i don't and like phil will probably <laughs> cut this out but yeah yeah they don't know what they're talking about uh, <laughs> okay uh but how like how has like how has pursuing creative projects and using creative projects to refine your voice? How has that contributed to like developing your career as a photographer?
0: I feel like I should have such a really tactile answer to this, but I just think, I think the answer to that question is so much grayer than, than, than we would imagine. You know, it, it always comes back to just one, one or two little trigger moments. If I think back to, you know, back when I was in design, And forums were a thing. Uh, We would share our work and our personal projects on this forum called Australian In Front, which is now defunct. Yeah. Now it's all social media. I hope forums one day make a comeback. And, you know, there was a lot to be said for bubble communities. But... But just through putting work up on that forum, that was our design community. And we'd get feedback, we'd get pushback, we'd get celebration, we'd get apathy, all of these really, really useful things in critically looking at the work we're doing. But if I think back, I had essentially a rolling ball of five years worth of work just through maybe two connections that mm-hmm. saw that work on there and then said, oh, hey, I've got a job. And that one job turns into years worth of work and, and collaborations. And it's the same with photography, you know, I had this incredible opportunity to join a an Antarctic project at the South Pole for a month. And that literally came through one person seeing my personal work and and being an advocate for how I shot and how I saw things. And then that was that foot in the door. And you know, that wasn't a specific project. It was just the work that I'd put out there, the the flavor of it, and then one person being an advocate and saying I think this is the guy that we want down there. So it's more of an obtuse thing. And it's why, you know, the good side of personal work isn't through seeking like a prescriptive end goal out of it. It's just in throwing it to the wind and then trusting that someone else will align with that. Hmm.
1: Yeah, no, I, yeah, I, I dig that because I think, too often we get fixated on the outcome or it's like i'm going to do this project and it's going to like a is going to equal b and then there becomes like a pressure and then people don't actually end up pursuing any of it because it gets it gets to be too big and like also well no so like do you just kind of just need to be in motion with like your creative
0: output 100 percent and, and and that's the advice. If you if you took off the question wrapper around that, that's the advice I need to hear right now. Yeah, <laughs> it's you just you just need to be in motion, hundred um, percent. And it can be that motion can be fast or loud, or it can be soft and, and steady. Yeah, I, I think history shows the second one is the more the more valuable one. But yeah, you just just have to be in motion and collaborate with people with, without a fixed outcome and if you being open to the fact that maybe you'll hate the end result, but maybe there was a little cherry and a little learning in there that was useful.
1: Yeah. No. And that makes me like everything that you kind of like touched on with like the form and like putting out work and like that uh, community aspect, like the, the podcast interview I did before this was with um, Mandy Johnson, who's this photographer from LA and she just put out, a book where uh, essentially she was has been running this uh, stand-up comedian show and then over the 10 years run was like doing these portraits on I, yeah I think also like an 8x10 like a, with like Polaroids um, of all you know like the stand-up acts and it's just like it's like that project didn't start as like i'm going to do this for 10 years it was like just kind of fell into it and then it evolved into be this bigger thing and then and then there's this thing about stand up comics that i've been kind of like chewing on since that interview is that like they're constantly in motion and they're constantly like experimenting and like failing mm. like hard and like failing in like <laughs> the grossest way possible you know and like bombing and like and almost like an actual like risk behind it and i think too often Mm. as photographers they squirrel away in their basements and then are afraid of whatever negative outcome and then end up not releasing any work and then because they're not releasing work they can't develop
0: 100 percent 100 percent I I haven't read the book, but a guy called Austin Cleon has a book called Show Your Work. Yeah. I I just try and think of that title. You know, I ripped all of my work off Instagram a year and a half ago or two years ago and I just stopped putting stuff out. But, you know, we don't have to play the machine always, but we've got to... Putting stuff out there is good because it lets you kind of move on from it, I think. It lets you take the the loss or the win and then move to the next thing instead of just sitting and stewing on it. And, And I would also say if... Folks are uh, wanting to work on on personal stuff, just to remember. You know, there's there's always going to be room for pop bands, yeah. There's always going to be a, a market for big scale, massive stuff. But there's also always going to be a market for Beach House or Frank Ocean or an artist that's really pushing the edge to hit people in a different way. And and that's always going to be there. And the more pop music there is, the more easily digestible stuff there is. The, the bigger that group is going to become that wants to be hit by something a little different a little and a little sideways. And yeah, the risk is pursuing that.
1: No, I think that's it. I think that's a good place. Sick. To end it. Ollie? Phil? I think we should start a punk band. Anyways, thank you for spending some time with us. Personally, I've been really buzzed since this conversation inspired to go create i guess this is a matter of following through sound mixing and music by the legend philip creamer